Welcome to First State Insights, a podcast presented by the University of Delaware's Institute for Public Administration. We call ourselves IPA for short. My name is Troy Mix. I'm Associate Director at the Institute and your host for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. On today's episode, we're joined by Mark Kennedy, who's the founder of Susubean, a fintech startup focusing on disrupting the payday lending industry. Mark and I spoke on August 27th, 2020, as part of a series of conversations focused on underrepresented entrepreneurs in Delaware. We covered his entrepreneurial journey from growing up in New York City and working in the financial services industry to relocating to Delaware and building Susubean. Let's get to the conversation. So, Mark, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Troy, thanks for having me. I am, uh, I'm really honored and welcome to, uh, to, that you welcome me on the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, we really wanted to talk about your experience as an entrepreneur and kind of motivations, challenges, and you know, progress that you're making along the way. And so we wanted to start with kind of, you know, when did you know, when did you feel that you wanted to be an entrepreneur in life? Well, you know, um, uh, interesting you should ask that question. I, I, I didn't know that I wanted to be an entrepreneur but at, at the, until I got older, but the entrepreneurial spirit was always uh, in me from a very young age. Um, I had a stepfather who would always tell us, uh, try to own a business or, you know, try to do something um, much bigger than yourself, right? And uh, my brother and I used to... Um, watch these uh, infomercials by the um, real estate tycoons when we were young. If you remember Carlton Sheets and, I think so, and Tom yeah. Vu and those individuals. Yeah. So we were really fascinated with that. So from a young age, we thought that's, that's what entrepreneurism was. And we kind of wanted that, but we didn't know that at the time. We just was kind of fascinated by the, the idea of being able to build a business and have a lot of money and all those types of things. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny. Your stepfather said, be, be bigger than yourself. And then the, a yes. lot of, a lot of the examples were definitely uh, kind of get rich quick schemes. <laughs> As, that's how I remember Carlton Sheets, for example. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of people don't remember him. Um, but yeah, he, he was, uh, he was a big deal uh, back then in the eighties and early eighties and late seventies. And, um, you know, it's it's not until I got older that I realized that entrepreneurism really wasn't about getting rich, but it was actually about solving problems. So, and and how I kind of came about that is because at a very at, even at that time, I was able to make money. My uncle used to have a a wrought iron uh, fence building um, side hustle that he used to do because he was a a welder. So on the side, he would, uh, he would kind of um, make these wrought iron fences because there's a lot of theft going on in the neighborhood that I grew up in. So, so he would make these wrought iron fences to go around people's yard, to put on people's windows and things like that, which, you know, today that's a safety hazard. But back then people were more concerned about people breaking in than them getting out in case of a fire or something like that. So he used to employ me to kind of help him, um, you know, hand him the different welding irons and things like that. And uh, when he finished building a fence, when I came home from school, it would be my job to actually paint the fence. So I had a little side hustle, you know, at a young age. And then when I was 15, I started working as a messenger in New York City. That's where I grew up. And so I was able to have money. And it's at that point I began to realize that even at a young age, that having money or having access to money really wasn't 
what it was about. So then I started thinking, well, maybe it was a lifestyle, right? Maybe being having so much money that you need, you're able to, 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 to live a, a particular type of lifestyle. But then again, you know, you realize a little bit different and it's a little bit more than that. So yeah, let's talk about New York City and New York City is a big place. So your neighborhood and maybe what you learned from the neighborhood, but also in school, maybe relative to entrepreneurship. Right. Yeah. So, well, I, I grew up in New York City, uh, as you mentioned, and uh, I went to a, a vocational high school, which was pretty prominent in New York City at that time. And these vocational high schools came about because of the Roosevelt era initiatives, which really allowed someone to, from the graduation of high school, have a marketable trade that would earn them very good money. And when, by, by the time I got into high school, they, they were starting to do away with that. A lot of the trades and industries were starting to, to leave from around the metropolitan areas. And so the initiative shifted from um, vocational to college bound. So I was like the first uh, class um, in that high school era to uh, be enrolled in a college bound program where the goal was at the end of four years that you would actually go, go to college. And then, uh, so we used to have these recruiters that came in and there was a, there was a, a recruiter from the a college of insurance in New York city. It was the first time that I saw someone, a black man who wasn't blue collar and wasn't exactly a square. <laughs> so, because you know, um, and he came to our class and he gave a presentation and the, he, he had the class completely engaged. He could speak very well. He was funny. And he was actually able to interject a lot of information and knowledge about investing, about insurance, about the finance world, that it blew everybody else away in the class. Now, it was to the extent that it was over our head, we didn't know it. But at the end of that, that session, I, I said, you know what? If going into insurance will make me like this guy, then I'm all in. So I wound up applying to the College of Insurance. And later on, um, uh, at the end of that year, I, uh, I got accepted and got a scholarship, uh, which led me into the, the finance world. So what, did, what was the spin that entrepreneurship took once you were in that finance world? I mean, how, what did you learn and what did you observe? For me, it was, um, it was a great culture shock. Um, because I, for the first time in my life, I was around, uh, that I actually kind of felt that I was a quote unquote minority in the sense that most of my friends and my, co- my colleagues, my classmates and everything like that weren't black and brown people. So it was a great experience because I got to really understand that we're all human beings and all of us feel the same way. We do the same things. We enjoy pretty much the same things. I made some really good friends. One of my friends got me involved at a college band um, and he was from Valdosta, Georgia uh, in the country. And we were really good friends. And, uh, but being in that environment taught me a little bit, something a little bit different in that everyone was looking to actually grow a business. So some of my classmates, their parents were owners of insurance companies and owners of insurance brokerages and agencies and so I began to see a, a different aspect of the world that I never saw before, because before, prior to that, all I saw was blue collar. I later uh, was able to in, um, intern with uh, Merrill Lynch in the investment and insurance and risk management side. 
and later on um, wind up after graduating from that uh, from college, I wind up working with uh, Aon and Marsh McLennan Insurance Brokerages, which is coming to the, the largest insurance brokerages at the time. Now, while I was there um, on the subject of entrepreneurship, I befriended a gentleman who he had what they call he was what they called an account executive. And he was a unique account executive because he had his own book of business. And that means he had his own clients. And what he would do is to sit under the umbrella of the insurance company, he would give a portion of his commissions to the, 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 comp- the brokerage that I was working for, and he would keep the rest. In exchange, they gave him a secretary, they gave, they gave him liability and insurance coverages and gave him an umbrella license to sit under but he really controlled his book of business. So um, let's say, for instance, like if he was bringing in $5 million, um, uh, let's say for rounding purpose, $10 million in, in, in commissions into the company, um, he was keeping 70% of that and 30% was actually going to the, the corporate entity. I got really fascinated with that because I understood for some reason now he actually owned something. He owned an asset, even though it wasn't a tangible asset, he owned his book of business. And so I would try to befriend him all the time and glean and, and, and get information from him. And I would ask him on a, on a lot of occasions, how can I do what you do? Because I was just an associate, right? So I helped market to different entities. And one day he kind of quite frankly told me like, Mark, you can't do what I do because you can't go where I go. Like I go to country clubs, I go to golf clubs, I go to these different associations where Mark, you would not be welcomed. And he was very frank and very honest, and he wasn't really trying to be derogatory. He was really empathetic because he understood what was going on. And um, the staff that he actually hired around him at that time was very diverse, Um, a Hispanic lady um, and uh, another Asian associate who I was friends with, and another Black um, lady that, that worked under him. So he understood and conveyed to me, he understood what I was trying to do. But so he told me, he said, you know, if, if keep trying um, and maybe you could go to another company and get a, you know, and, and start from there. But um, he encouraged me on, but he told me pretty frankly, you know, can, where he can go, I can't go. So essentially as a black man, you couldn't gain access to the same clients that he could. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's what big. So, and that led me on to moving to another company where I, I moved up from, you know, kind of like low tier um, clients to what they call middle market clients. So these are clients who uh, generate revenue anywhere from $10 million annually to $50 million annually for their, their companies. And that business, what they do, they kind of sit kind of like we have these, they're, they're like sort of like orphan clients. In other words, at one point, there was an account executive that was over them and that account executive either passed on or retired. And so the corporate entity now was receiving all 100% of that book of business rather than 30% before. And so they needed to kind of like divvy it out to the, the service staff, which is what I was part of, to actually continue to maintain that book of business. So I started working with that company because the opportunity was, it was, would be my boss and an assistant, and we would be kind of responsible for renewing annually that book of business. And that book of business was, we were generating about $10 million in, uh, in revenue for the, you know, for the brokerage. And it's at that point in 
time when I got really close to the numbers because I was responsible for not only reviewing it, you know, making sure that we, we made the client happy by servicing them, but I was also responsible for making sure the accounting was correct. And I began to really see, wait a minute, I'm bringing $10 million and I'm making like $50,000, $60,000 a year. My boss was making like one hundred and ten. dollars The secretary was making thirty, dollars And I was like, something's not right here. <laughs> you know, you know, not even, we weren't even combined. We weren't even taking 10% of that book of business we were responsible for renewing. And so at that point, I started to get a little bit disenchanted because I wanted to be able to own something, to build something. Sure. Of my own. So yeah, it sounds like all along you had had kind of side hustles to have money in your pocket growing up and, you know, you're getting exposed now to working in business and the value of ownership. I mean, what did your kind of early forays as an adult look like in in entrepreneurship uh, after insurance or during the insurance uh, period of your life? Right. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. That, and that's going to bring a smile on my face because it's actually one of my, it's a, a passion that I have and it's, and it's part of the industry that I'm, that I'm working in today. Um, you were right. I did always have a side hustle. And um, uh, I don't know if you remember, I told you about my friend who got me into a music band while we were in college as, as a hobby. What we did was um, I learned a lot from him, uh, particularly from the audio engineering side. So after I left, I left college, that's when the hip hop scene was beginning to flourish as more of a commercial type venture rather than, you know, a musical, musical artistry. And so I would, um, I would do music production on the side. So I would go to work in insurance during the day and I'd be a music product producer at night. I would, um, work with different artists and, um, they didn't understand their way around the music studio. Um, and I did, I understood the music studio and then my, just my, from my experience with the band helped me to understand music as a whole and being able to put together songs from all the rehearsals that we conducted and things like that. So I began to, to work that side hustle and began to make a little bit of money on the side. And it's at that point, um, when I began to study it a little bit further, I became fascinated with the, the position of the music producer. Now, the music producer, to me, I saw a direct correlation to a music producer and account executive in insurance. Whereas the company that you work for as a broker was the insurance company as a music producer, who you worked for was really the record company. And your clients were the artists. So you were kind of like the middleman. And it's at that point that I realized once I did my research into the business that the music producers always got paid first. So I was like, okay, that sounds really good. And then they also had residual income. So if they produced a good song, a hit song or whatever the case may be, then there'd be potential revenue that would continue on afterwards. So I decided at that point that, you know, I should really probably try and think about transitioning because now I could actually build something that I owned. And then, uh, I don't know if you remember, Elliot Spitzer was the attorney general of New York at the time, and he was really cracking down on a lot of financial crimes. The area that he was focusing on was insurance. I remember it got so intense that the CEO of the brokerage I was working for crafted a letter to every single broker saying, here are the rules and guidelines that you needed to follow. However, those weren't the guidelines that we were following. And I remember talking to my boss and saying, hey, listen, what does this letter mean? Because we're doing this. Everybody's doing it, but he says to do this. And my boss said, well, no, just, just continue doing business the way we, we, we were doing it. And that's when it occurred to me that 
had an audit been done in, in, in the book of business that we did, that it would have been my license that would have been lost rather than the corporate license that would have been lost. And at that point, I said, okay, no, I can't continue to do this anymore because we could be audited at any moment in time. So that's when I decided to, you know, uh, I had saved up some money and decided to kind of make the jump into the music uh, production uh, and, you know, went back to school, learned the audio trade a little bit um, as a means of maybe able supplementing my um, living expenses until I could continue to build music contracts that would provide a, a, a bigger source of asset. And you're still in New York City at this point, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. I was still in New York City. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And was that a successful, fulfilling part of your life? Yeah, it was extremely fulfilling. It's, it's my passion. So I loved it. Right. So it wasn't work for me. Um, I enjoyed every minute of it. Shortly thereafter, but financially, on the other end, it was not what I expected and was hoping for and was aiming for. Because there's a, a subsequent of incidences that occurred that directly affected uh, the ability to actually make it a, a financially viable for me. There was this the uh, hip hop scene. There was this shift from the East Coast, West Coast um, battles that was going on, where the record companies decided that they were it would it was no longer in their interest to sign East Coast and West Coast artists, and they started focusing on artists in the South. So possibly my work actually declined and decreased. I took my skills over into the web production world because that's when the dot-com bubble started rising and was doing very well there as a website producer. And then the dot-com bubble burst. And so uh, I was capped there. Uh, And then I went into um, uh, actually doing a lot of uh, live events where I was um, setting up for trade shows and and, uh, taking my audio skills to live events. And uh, I was in uh, the corporate environment where I was doing a lot of um, investor relations programs and um, sales seminars. So I learned a lot actually working in that environment from a business standpoint. I almost like I feel like I got an MBA just from listening to real life executives speak uh, in in ways that the average person would not hear them share their information. But then 9-11 happened. And so that brought the live world to a a screeching halt. Um, It's at that point I decided that I would uh, move out of New York City just because, you know, the uncertainty. I had gotten married, had kids at that time. So we wanted to find a a, a safer place actually to raise the kids. And that's why we moved to Delaware. Yeah, you were really hit by some greatest hits there. I mean, 9-11.com, East Coast, West Coast battles, Elliot Spitzer. (laughs) <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot there, Mark. Yes, um, yes. So you, you end up in Delaware and you have a, a day job, right? Yes, yes. So um, when I came down to Delaware, um, I started working for county government. They built a, uh, a brand new facility and they outfitted it with a lot of audio video technology that um, no one knew how to use. And the position had sat dormant for about maybe about six months prior to me actually moving to Delaware. So it was just, you know, serendipity. I happened to move to Delaware and saw a job posting and uh, went, filled out the, 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 um, the, the application. I started working there and uh, I've been there for 15 years now. And what that has given me is a very intimate understanding of community and how decisions that are made on a economic level and a political level affects the lives of people in their homes every single day. 
And I began to see a lot of correlation between the urban environment that I grew up in where, you know, I was, I probably had about 10 or 15 housing projects within five mile radius of where I lived to rural Delaware. And one area that I found really in common was the area of, you know, these of the payday lending, you know, the, the need that, that everyday people have to um, make micro loans, small term loans just to get them by. Now, when I grew up in New York City, it was more, you know, people went to the bookie or to the loan shark. But in, in Delaware, it was more the payday lending, the title loan lending places. And kind of say what you want about them. They're actually fulfilling a, a need. There's a problem that's being solved there. Now, it's being solved to, you know, a lot of times to the detriment of people because um, they're spending exorbitant amounts of money in these uh, loan fees. However, they're utilizing it because it is helping to get by in, in situations where they would otherwise be unable to. So the beginning of this year, I entered into the uh, First Day Accelerators um, program with Gary Johnson. And it is there that um, I was able to decide that that's the problem that I wanted to tackle as an entrepreneur is the um, micro loan industry and being able to shift people from paying out those exorbitant loan fees to actually saving them. So the, the goal that, that I have is I want, I want to have help 3 million Americans go from paying out $3 billion a year to actually saving and investing $3 billion a year. What kind of inspirations did you take for that micro loan approach? Where did, where did those ideas come from? So prior to um, in, enrolling in the uh, uh, accelerator program, I didn't have a particular idea per se. I knew there was a problem. My goal in entering the program was really to help out somebody else, be of assistance to somebody else. I took the approach of trying to be uh, the solution rather than the, the problem, right? Or, or at least not doing anything about the problem. It is um, in that program that I was able to get around other like-minded entrepreneurs who really cultivated and nurtured this idea kind of that was bubbling underneath the surface and really bring it out through discussions and through um, seeing um, different similarities of other problems that they were trying to tackle. And so it was a great synergy um, between the, uh, uh, my colleagues inside the, the um, startup program, as well as the mentors that were brought in from the um, community level, from the business executive level, and from other entrepreneurs um, around the country doing great and exciting things as well. So how important would you say it was that, you know, you talked in, in your high school days about this person coming in and introducing you to the insurance career as an opportunity. And he was a person of color. Uh, how important is it that first founders is other people of color and at least some of the mentors are other people of color? Yes, absolutely. It was extremely important. First of all, I, I think I mentioned you in the beginning where when you're younger, you, you kind of, I thought about entrepreneurism as making money is when we got to the, when I got to the first founders, I realized it was really about solving the problem and to see other people being committed to actually solving the problem. And it is when I realized, Hey, I have the ability to solve a problem 
in my community, right? In a community that I came from, in a community that I, I'm currently in. And I saw that there were similarities again between the two. So if we can come up with a solution, many people could benefit from the solution. So that was very, very important as well. Because I didn't know, I didn't have the first idea about a startup, you know. Um, I think you hear a lot about different startups. I never really understood what that meant on a a practical and industrial level, um, what a startup was. Um, I just kind of thought, hey, you're starting a business. But I realized it was actually something a little bit more to a startup than that. So what's your company called and what, what stage are you at and what are your goals in the near term? All right. So, so the name of the, co- the company that I'm starting up is uh, called Susu Bean. And um, Susu Bean it, uh, will utilize the power of lending, of insurance and investment. We'll synergize those energies uh, using technology to bring to people so that they can get the benefits of those industries without having to um, give away large amounts of their hard-earned capital to others and use it to, to build assets from themselves over, over time. And so being that those are three of the most highly regulated industries, uh, where we are with the startup process is we're looking to get into a uh, regulatory sandbox where we can prove and, uh, and further develop our business model under the partnership and oversight of the uh, various regulatory bodies so that we can really offer the highest level of service, both from a practical level and as well as a, um, you know, socially and legally responsible level. So I know you mentioned 3 million people. That's kind of your overall goal. I guess, who are the 3 million? Like, what's the target market? And then um, I assume you're going to start in Delaware, but maybe that's not a right assumption. But is that, what's the market look like in Delaware of that 3 million? So the, um, the, the overall market marketplace is um, there are about $9 billion every year is spent in these uh, micro loan fees, payday loan lending fees. Um, about 18 million people in the United States as a whole have taken out a, uh, a payday loan within the last five years and about 12 million people annually. So in the, in the state of Delaware, we're talking about that number representing thousands, uh, rather, because it's certainly not one of the largest, largest states. So $9 billion and 12 million loans annually, it's a significant um, portion of, of the population that is um, not being served optimally uh, in terms of, of what they're paying out and what they could be potentially saving. Because the, the way those loans work is, you would take out a $500 loan and because you've, you, your hand was forced to take out this loan because you may have gotten sick because most of the, the, um, the customers to payday loans are people, are blue collar workers who um, work on an hourly basis. So we're not talking large, uh, a big uh, per capita or household income somewhere in the range of thirty dollars to $40,000 a year of, of, uh, of household income. And so, you may have you may have fallen ill for a couple of weeks. You didn't get the full pay that you kind of needed. So now you fall behind on your rent. You fall behind on your bill. You fall behind on your car note or or your your um, housing payment. 
So you go to a payday, payday loan lending place and borrow $500 just to kind of get you to, to, to make ends meet. However, because you're behind that loan that you thought maybe might last only two weeks, you wind up having to extend out for on average six months. And the way you extend it out is because you don't have the full $500 to, to pay back within you know, two weeks or a month, you extend that loan by giving them $50. So those $50 every two weeks uh, over a six month period, you know, would wind up, co- wind up being costing you about $1,000. So you wind up paying $1,500 for a $500 loan. Uh, over the course of six months. Our goal is to trim that significantly and to get customers to start saving that money for themselves. Yeah, so it's really a huge potential market that could be helped and, and could be you know, part of your, your clientele. Before we leave the company particularly, where'd you get the name? Okay, so um, Susu Bean, um, uh, I, I'm from a, uh, a Caribbean immigrant background. So my, my parents um, uh, emigrated um, from the Caribbean in the uh, mid-60s. So one of the ways they uh, got money to actually come here um, was through Susu, because the, in the United States, they were actually taking immigrants to do a lot of domestic work in the uh, New York City area. And so you actually had to apply. And this process actually, you know, at that time took two or three years. So you would apply and it would take a two or three year process for you to actually get your approval. At that time, unfortunately, they were, um, when they got your approval, because of all the bureaucracy and the postal services in, in those countries, you actually got your approval maybe two to three weeks before it actually expired. So they would give you an approval. By the time you received the approval, two or three, you had two or three weeks to get your plane tickets, to make your accommodations, to get your, your visa st- and your passport stamped and ready to go. And, um, that, and, and then get, have some kind of money to at least sustain you until you were able to finally secure what you needed to secure here in the United States. So what my, um, my uh, parents' family did was they bundled together as a susu. So everyone in the community that was there said, okay, you know, well, we, you know, they knew my mom was coming. So they would say, you know what, we'll give a hundred dollars a week for the next, uh, how many other weeks they needed, um, because they were all working and they agreed that they would do that. And so, um, my mother's hand quote unquote was the first hand. So she got that money to actually, um, come to the United States. And th- that practice of community lending or what they call today crowdfunding loans um, actually started from West Africa. It was a West African custom that came, that came over to the Caribbean. And uh, when you do that research, it actually goes back a little bit further. It actually goes back to, to uh, more of a Hebrew culture where it was not, it was not permissible for um, people to lend money to each other with interest, but you are permitted to lend each other when they're in need. So this custom actually kind of extrapolated, and you'll find it across uh, the world in many different cultures, how the, um, the, the, uh, this crowdfunding and community lending actually is used to support people where you don't pay interest, right? But then, um, you do get the, the, the lending that you do need, especially in emergency situations. So it's the support, it's the community commitment. And because of the community that's there, they know that, okay, yes, I know you're working, right? So, and I know you, you know, we know each other. And so when we agree to commit 
to doing this. We know we know we have the support. And generally, a lot of times it was actually done among the women. The women were the ones that actually held that 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 whole, uh, I guess, system together where they trusted each other and they knew each other and things like that. It sounds like a really rich and appropriate name for, you know, the effort that you're undertaking. Right, exactly. And so what we're trying to do is not necessarily uh, is to grow it. So that's why it's called Susu Bean, because we want to grow it into something that's a little bit bigger um, that would um, extend into actually asset building, not just immediately lending, getting you accustomed to, to saving money, but also then taking that money and investing it into other community projects so that you would actually be grow an asset for yourself. So we talked, you know, a good deal about your inspirations and, you know, this focus on community problems that came from in part the, your role in First Founders Accelerator. What are the other, you know, who, who else, what other organizations are you drawing your greatest support from right now? So, um, Troy, uh, it's um, uh, efforts like yours and programs like yours that is actually um, putting the spotlight on, on entrepreneurs of color and just entrepreneurship as a whole, as a means of, of, of getting the word out and drawing up community support. Because one of the things that I learned in working in government is that if you don't have support, community support is very vital. And any, any program that can generate community support, people knowing one another, synergizing energies, um, that's critically important. The mentors that uh, First Founders has actually brought in to, for, uh, to our space in the cohort so that we can actually tap into, that's really, really huge. Um, John Collins is, uh, is one of the individuals who is kind of being a support um, and, and, and offering um, mentorship to me in the process, uh, as well as the, um, the, uh, the governmental associations that supporting the first founders and supporting other efforts uh, around the, um, the entrepreneurship space is very, very, very huge and very, very helpful. So what, um, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs that might follow in your footsteps? The, the first advice that I would give to an entrepreneur is one, find a problem that you're passionate about solving because that's the key because entrepreneurship, uh, as I mentioned before, really isn't about attaining a lot of money and a lot of wealth and, and just making money. It's about solving a problem. Uh, find that a problem that you're passionate about solving, being committed to solving that problem. And, and by being committed, I mean that you, you start on a path and a journey and trust that that path that you start out on, whether, whether it, it, you're starting out left field, center field, or right field, just trust that it's going to ultimately lead you to home, home plate. You're going to go through some twists and turns, ups and downs, and things like that. But as long as you keep your eye on the problem that you're trying to solve, you will eventually, uh, you will eventually get there. Well, that's great to hear, Mark. Uh, I really enjoyed the chance to talk with you today and learn a, bit, a little bit about your background and your, your efforts, uh, efforts right now. Uh, so thanks so much for joining me today. Troy, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, continued success on and the, the, the podcast and the program and everything that you're doing. It's, it really is a great uh, help to the community as a whole. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it. For more information on Mark's work, visit susubean.com. That's S-U-S-U-B-E-A-N 
udell.com. For more on IPA, visit ipa.udell.edu. Thanks again for tuning in to First State Insights. Reach out with any comments and be sure to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. I hope you'll join us again soon.